Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. And we're back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. Another episode of Insight Live where we're going to talk about startups. And so first question for you, Brendan, is how long have you been fascinated by startups and what have you done proactively to study startups and startup founders? Absolutely, Billy. So for me, I've been passionate about startups ever since I got my first corporate job. So let's paint the picture a little bit for the audience. When I was 19, the only thing I wanted was to get into corporate because corporate was my ticket out of poverty. And I got a great job, one of the big four accounting firms, PricewaterhouseCoopers, when I was 20 years old, and it changed my life. I was like, oh my God, I could actually make something of myself. But after I finished that internship, I started to look for more. What are other things I could be doing with my time? And more importantly, because I always love studying other people and I still do to this day, how have other people invested their time? Not their money, but their time. So I started researching people like Elon Musk, people like Peter Thiel, people like Jeffrey Stoppelman, Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn. All these incredible people, Mark Zuckerberg, what decisions did these individuals make with their time? And that's when I realized a different world, a world where people valued creating important projects, making a big difference in the world, creating something brand new that nobody believed in versus just getting a steady multi six-figure job, which I thought was fascinating. So I started studying, why would anyone bother doing this? Isn't it safer to just get a great job, make a lot of money and just be done with it? So I read books like Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Elon Musk's autobiography, I read a bit of it, not too much of it. Oh, a good one, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. He was the one of the co-founders of Netscape, the first ever internet browser. Big one anyways. And I started studying these individuals, and I just noticed most of these people were eccentric characters. They weren't normal. When the guys started PayPal and Peter and Elon started PayPal, it, was around, it wasn't around emailing money and making that more efficient. It was around decrippling the U.S. currency and creating a new currency. It was absolutely wild. 
so yeah, it's interesting to see how startups land and, and that's how I got into it. And I, I eventually realized that I was exactly like those crazy folks. Yeah, you're exactly like those crazy folks. I love it. Okay, so originally you thought you were gonna take the safe route. It's so funny because in reading Stephen Hoffman's book, it's all about surviving a startup, which is the name of it, surviving a startup. One of the things that he's very adamant about is that you shouldn't be a startup founder if you're not fully committed, if you're not so 100% bought in that it's almost non-negotiable that you'll get to where you want to go. You'll figure it out. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to pivot, change, tweak, adjust, do a lot of things on your road to success, but it can't be that you're going halfway. It can't be that you're kind of curious. And some of the things that he talks about, the fact that a lot of people become startup founders because it's the cool thing to do because other people are doing it or because they think they're going to get rich or all these reasons that maybe aren't really the reasons why people should do it. He says the number one reason you should do it is because you want to solve a very specific problem and you have an idea that will allow you to do that. But as you study the founders that have seen success, what are some of the common traits or themes that you've figured is the constant amongst all of them that would be valuable to share right now? I love that, Billy. I'd even add a couple of more layers to the incredible points you just brought forward. One of them being obsessive, relentless, almost delusionary focus. There's a great analogy in music to make this more relatable to folks. For those who know who Russ is, Russ is one of the greatest artists of our time. He's done really well as an independent artist, but most people don't really know Russ's story. Ever since he was 16, 17, he said, I want to make a name. I want to be one of the biggest names in music. And everyone told him he was crazy. It's like, come on, Russ, you're like a kid. What are you going to do in music? So he lived in his mother's basement. And luckily, he has, a, he has an Italian mother, so they never kicked him out. And during that time, as people were saying that he was not going to make it, he was not going to make it, eventually, as he kept producing music in the basement with those pasta, with that, the, the food that his mom was giving him, eventually, when he was 23 or 24, he made it. One of his songs went viral and the rest was history. And that analogy applies really well in startup land, which is the first quality I'll talk about. Russ describes it much better than I do. And he calls it delusional self-belief. You have to believe in your idea so much that it's even crazy to you. I'll give you a great example of delusional self-belief. Mark Zuckerberg, when he was a couple of years into Facebook, Peter Thiel and the gang, because he was like one of the first investors in Facebook, they got an offer to, to sell the company for a billion dollars to Yahoo. And of course, we know today, Facebook is worth 1.2, I believe, trillion dollars. So 1,000x what it was currently selling for. But back then, I mean, nobody knew Facebook was going to be a thing, not even Peter. Peter actually told Mark to sell the company. He said, dude, you're going to make, he, didn't, he probably didn't say dude, but he said, hey, Mark, you're going to make $250 million cash. Like, that's it. Your whole life could be amazing. And he just looked at Peter like he was crazy. And he tells that story in his book. Mark responded with, well, Peter, if I sell Facebook, wouldn't I have to build another one? How crazy is that? Delusional self-belief. You're so obsessed in the thing that you're building that you don't care about anything else. And that is a very important trait to all successful founders. Reed Hastings is a great example of this who's the founder of Netflix. 
Because what fascinated me the most about Reed that I don't think a lot of people really think about is by transitioning from a DVD company where all of his executives are focused on operations to an online streaming company, he had to have a very difficult conversation with the exec team and end up firing most of them and replace that team. So the question for you, Captain Hoff, whether it's in regards to Netflix or just in general, is how do you think the best founders navigate those difficult conversations and those tough pain points in the business to get to the vision and the direction that they want to go to, regardless of what everyone else thinks? Yes, 100%. And I think that's a really, really good point. One that I would love to bring up tomorrow when we meet with, they, they call him Captain Hoff. So that's what he's known as in Silicon Valley. And he is the CEO of Founderspace. So if you haven't read his books, Make Elephants Fly and Surviving a Startup, and he has another book that just came out, Five Powerful Truths. So the other thing that he talks about, which again, this is a, a kind of a pregame conversation before we meet with him tomorrow. But another thing that he talks about is building the right team, which is so, so critical. And if you look at the unicorns, he even breaks down all of the unicorns and how many founders. And so the optimal is about two to three founders. But the other thing he talks about is the fact that early on, you should avoid at all costs taking money to build your business. And you should also avoid at all costs paying people money. In other words, he's a big advocate for paying with equity. Or at least, of course, if it's a founder, then that's what it is. But if it's a, an employee that at least a good percentage of their compensation is equity-based, you know, there may be some base salary and things of that nature. Uh, and every situation is different. And so he's a big advocate for avoiding going into debt, starting a business. And he's also a very big advocate for getting people who are so committed, much like you've described a founder being, he thinks the whole, let's just call it the founding organization should have that same kind of obsession. And that deep obsession is what's going to drive that team, propel that team forward. And so I'm curious, as I share this insight and his belief, you put three up there because he did say two to three, and he's done studies on this, that, that the numbers don't lie. The unicorns that have had the most success have about two to three founders, and maybe the, the number is three. But point being is that you got to have people that are committed, that are obsessed early on. Talk to me a little bit about building a team from a startup perspective, from what you've studied from the successful startup founders. Oh, yeah. Steve's absolutely correct, right? So I was doing this two, two, three. He's absolutely correct on that. And let me add a lot more layer because you, you talked about a lot of great points. So, so let's go ahead and break those down so people have the context to that. So why does Steve say two to three? The reason is fairly simple because founders need to be complementary. Okay. If you have one business guy or a gal and nobody's building the technology stack or the product, especially in a technology startup, you're not going to have any product to sell. But if you just have a technical person who's building the product all day, but nobody's selling the product, well, you don't have any sales you're going to lose too. And that's why we've seen historically that most successful unicorns, Stripes founders were the Collison brothers, right? When we think about Zucks, Zucks had multiple co-founders, but then he kind of went on his own. Even Gates started with Paul Allen and the list can go on. But what these teams had in common is they were good about two different things. 
one was really good at sales, the other one was really good at technical, or they were both good at both. But it's having that ability to just go back and forth between ideas, especially in startups with technology in it, because those things are really difficult. That's one. Number two is the idea of not putting yourself in debt with product ideas. The reason Steve argues that, once again, I agree with him as well, is because in technology startups specifically, when you build something new, you're going to get it wrong 150 times, thousands of times. One example of this I can give you is Eben Spiegel, who's the founder of Snapchat, right? A social media app that we all know very well. It's just nobody really knows who the founder is. There's a great story about Snapchat. Took Evan 400 product trials before he perfected the product. 400, not four, not 40, 400. Mm. Imagine if he hired developers and threw out money out of it. He would have been bankrupt 10 times over before he would have gotten a morsel of what Snapchat is today. That's why it's so important for you to be able to build the product. And that fun fact, that's why I'm not a technology founder, because I can't build the product. And I do have a co-founder who can build the product with me. So I'd rather just build a YouTube channel, right? So that's one other thing. And then number three, the reason Steve argues that you shouldn't pay anyone at the beginning is not because he's a fan of we shouldn't pay people, but rather because it's an indicator Early on in this life cycle of a startup, if your idea is inspirational enough for people to come work for for free, that's what we're really testing. Is my idea so exciting that people who have six-figure, multi-six-figure jobs at Amazon say, wait a second, I need to go work on this idea with Billy. That's worth my time because the mission is so inspiring. Here's the best example that we all know, SpaceX. There are so many engineers at SpaceX that could have easily gotten a job at NASA, could have just done nothing their whole life, made easily two, 250K a year, probably more in aerospace engineering and spatial engineering and done nothing with their life. But they were so compelled by the mission that Elon was doing that they dropped it and just went to go work for him on equity and very little pay at the beginning. That is the power of amazing founders. Same thing with me. When I started MasterTalk, the person who did my logo, not many people know this, did it for free. He didn't pay me anything. He just said, I like your mission. I like what you're doing. So this is the key. If people are willing to work for you for free at the beginning stages of business, where you don't have cash, you just have an idea, it generally means you got something interesting. And the opposite is also true. If people are unwilling to work for you at the beginning stages because they don't believe in it, there's a chance, and, and Stephen talks about this, there's a chance that your idea is not good. If people are unwilling to sacrifice their own time to be a part of this journey that you're on, your idea is not great. And not to say that you may not be the right person, right? So you could obviously make sure you don't just say one person didn't like it, therefore I'm going to give up. But he's a big advocate for finding people who have the immense and intense conviction And as you said, obsession for what they're doing and so much so that they're willing to do it knowing that they'll make a lot in the long term through an equity type of arrangement. And if they're unwilling to do that, then that could be a red flag. You said so much there. And man, I cannot wait for you to meet him because you're going to love it. It's almost like you've been with me as I've been reading this book. So the other thing he talks about is the idea of having complementary partners and co-founders. You've just highlighted that so brilliantly as he does in his book. The other thing he talks about is the reality that the initial idea may not be 
the long-term company. So are you familiar with a company called SocialNet? No, you're not, but you're on that platform right now because that was what LinkedIn was originally. It was a dating site. Literally, it was a dating site, but Reed Hoffman learned so much in doing that and he learned so much about social networks that it was the precursor for what now know as LinkedIn. And so this is just fascinating topics, man, because I love exploring what has happened historically. Even YouTube started as a dating site, right? And they quickly realized that it's much bigger than just that. And so if I'm a startup founder, which I happen to be, but anybody listening who is a startup founder or potentially wants to be a startup founder, what examples can you give or what advice do you have for somebody identifying people that are complimentary? Where do you find them? How do you find them? How do you start to build that team? Right. So let's start with the first thing that you said that I thought was brilliant around Steve's point that the first idea will likely not be the end result. I'll even push that even further to say in most cases, almost all of them, it won't be the final idea. I'll give you an example. When Stuart Butterfield started Slack, right, the, the project management messaging app that most companies use today to message each other through and employees talking to each other, that started as a feature in a video game. Not many people know that. Stuart was building a video game. The video game was getting traction. And then they built a messaging functionality within the video game and turned that into Slack. It was absolutely crazy. Same thing with Twitch. Right, it started as a, a company called Justin TV. It's literally a dude named Justin with a camera on his head. How ridiculous is that? And then after they got into broadcasting, it turned to this mayhem. And they got so lucky that the broadband internet speed increased super rapidly so people could start live streaming. And by focusing only on the gaming niche, they were able to make a name with Twitch and sell to Amazon for almost a billion dollars. So a lot of this stuff is crazy. You never will get it on the first try. The only times I've seen that occur is if it's a multiple exit founder. So a multi-exit founder or someone who's already built a startup and sold it for money. So when they start the new company, they already know exactly what the product vision is right. and they, they execute it really well, which is very And they've, they've been down that road before, right? They've learned so much in having done it before that they're able to apply a lot of the thinking and learning that they've had in other scenarios. And they've also made so many mistakes. Correct. And they know that the odds are so low that they're a lot more sharper with making sure there's an actual product here. And now that they have the technical skills and the team and the network, it's a lot easier for them. We call them serial entrepreneurs and serial tech founders. It's a lot easier for them to be more successful down the line. And that's why the average age, by the way, for those who don't know this, the average age of the successful entrepreneurs in their 40s, it's just that the media tends to overemphasize the young people because it makes a good story. Because right, there's a sell downloads. But to your question, your other question about complementary founders, the reason that's so important is because it allows you to move much faster. Right? Two horses running together will go much faster than one horse trying to pull a rock, right? Versus mm -hmm. two horses pulling the same rock. So, but the key here, and, and this is something I think a lot of people miss, is you should never partner with someone only based on skill set. Because startups get really hard, really fast. So what you need to ask yourself is how long have you known these founders? And are you willing to stay with them for the next five to 10 years? Most startups in the technology space don't fail because of bad ideas. They fail because of bad people. Rather, maybe not bad people, but founder conflict, 
where the founders fight each other and everything. It sounded goes. perfect the way you said it, man. I mean, that's the reality. <laughs> Fair enough. But it's not necessarily they're bad human beings. I think it's more just they can't find a way to work together. Right. And the idea just doesn't work out. So like, I'll give you the best example. Like we took Airbnb's founders, right? Brian Chesky, Nathan Bukarczyk, and Joe Gebbia. These three people are still best friends to this day. If you look at Stripe's founder, pretty much everything runs on Stripe now. People don't really know that Patrick and John Collison are brothers and they're co-CEOs of the company. That's the reality of the situation. A lot of these people have known each other for so long, and my business partner, same thing, that we know each other's weaknesses, we know each other's strengths, but more importantly, we know we'll stick when times get really hard. And this is where people get a little bit too flimsy with the way that they pick founders. You need to be willing to swear in blood with the people you do business with. Because yeah, when times are good, times will be great. Yeah, money is everywhere. Sales are going great. When times are bad, there's a recession. There's another COVID. There's another economic recession. You got to make sure that the person next to you is someone who's willing to deal with that stuff, kind of like a marriage. Mm, And I love it, man, because it's so true. It's not just about skill set. Yes, that matters. And yes, it's great if you have unique skill sets that maybe differ from each other. So you could each have a specialty, so to speak. But even more important than that is there's two things that I heard right there. One is you got to like this person. You got to gel with this person. You are getting married practically to this person. So it's imperative that you have a strong, strong bond that you actually want to be around this person for a long period of time. And you have to have that kind of long-term vision. The other thing I heard, they need to be uber committed And a quote from Steve's book is, and I I can't remember who said this, but the question they asked was, are you interested or are you committed? Because if you're just interested, that's not enough. You need to be committed. And I just, I think that's such a powerful insight and way of thinking about people's involvement. So we could talk about this for 10 years, but but I want to cover a few other topics before we conclude. The thing that he said that was really interesting also is this idea of copying other people. And he's a huge advocate for this. In fact, he says, he didn't use these words exactly, but it's malpractice to not copy. Alibaba, right? It's direct copy. But they don't stay a copy. They don't stay a clone. They copy and they change, which is really, really interesting to me because I think all too often we get in this mindset where we got to just completely reinvent, completely create something brand new and fresh. And I think a lot of times there's a whole bunch of support for that way of thinking. But the reality is, you look at every, practically every company has copied another company. And example after example of the company that copied the first company or the second company, they're much bigger than those first few companies. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this because he says copying is the best business model in the world, bar none. What are your thoughts? Okay, here's one thing I would say that that might interest you. I wouldn't go as far as to say that copying others is the best business model. But what I will say is copying others is very important for a couple of reasons. One, because when you study the past, history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. Understanding what made these founders successful is what will make you successful. But the other piece that I'll say is the reason this copy mentality is important is in regards to different processes within your business. I'll give you a great example of Jeff Bezos, of course, the founder and CEO, former CEO of amazon.com. And what's interesting about Jeff is he always says this to his leadership team. 
So exactly. As Michelle just said in the chat, don't waste time reinventing the wheel. He would say, look, uh, guys and gals, if you see a technology from Microsoft or any other company that's working really well, just use it. If that's better, use it. Whereas Steve Ballmer, who was running Microsoft at the time when Jeff was in his prime days at Amazon, he was always saying, I don't want MacBooks here. I don't want anything outside of Microsoft here. So they moved a lot slower. So why is this mentality important? Because if you're not 10 times better than your competition, you're better off just reusing what that competition does so that you can focus your people's resources, your team's resources on what will actually drive the best results for the client. I'll give a super, super example with me. That's super simple, right? There's some things in the business that we want to innovate, right? Public speaking coaching or podcasting services or things like that, because that's our bread and butter. That's what drives revenue. But you're not going to see me trying to reinvent this restream studio platform. I'm not going to say, you know what, Billy, let me go back to the drawing board because I don't like this platform here. Let me just go hire a development team so that I can create my own restream and do my own lives on that platform. What a waste of time because I'm taking my team's resources to work on a skill that I don't have the ability to make 10 times better than what I have right now. So I'm just going to go with what I have right now. So that's the same mentality. But I will disagree when I say I don't think it's the best business model. I think the best business model is one's unique insights applied to an industry in a way that no one else has done it before and become successful from. Yeah, and I think the point that you've made is, is so important when we think about the fact that, and this is what he also brings up in his book, is that people, companies specifically, have paid millions of dollars to develop things to figure out systems, to figure out best practices, to figure about, out about how they go about to go to market and marketing and sales and all of these different facets of their business. And this is why he's a huge advocate for looking at those things and adopting some of them and utilizing some of them. Okay. So we're going to close this down in a couple minutes. Before we do, I want to get an idea of what you want to ask him tomorrow. What are some of the questions that you want to ask him? Obviously we just... This is like the first couple chapters of his book, let alone the entire thing. I'm telling you, when I read his first book, and I told him this, it was the best business book I've ever read. It really was. And the thing that he does in his books, and he even called this out because I was like, listen, this is just the best book I've ever read. He does not write a book that is the same few concepts recycled over and told in different ways a hundred times. Because we've all read those books that, it could be summed up in like 10 pages, but it's actually 200 pages. It's just recycled in different ways, which to me is a waste of time. And so, and I haven't even finished reading the book. I'm going to finish reading it when we're done here. I'm so excited to go through and really pinpoint some of the key takeaways, key insights and dive in. And so obviously, I know you haven't read the entire book yet either, but knowing what you know about startups and having the deep curiosity that you have, what are the topics or areas that you want to explore? One primarily, and I always like to ask this to other tech junkies, and the question is really state of the union. What does he think about the current fundraising state? Where does he think startups will go in the, the next five years? What sectors and industries is the most bullish on that he's the most excited about? And which are the sectors and industries he's not too excited about that he think the timing isn't right? Because the number one indicator of, of a startup success, Billy. And Bill Gross argues this in his TED Talk. It's not money, it's not team, it's not Marcus on anything, but rather timing. 
So even if you get everything right, best team in the world, you have all the money you can eat for lunch, you have everything, because the timing is wrong, you lose. Mm. So because of that, there's a lot of great ideas that are becoming more successful today that weren't possible 15 years ago, like Instacart. Instacart was only possible now that we all have mobile phones and now it's a lot easier for you to order groceries, whereas before that wasn't a thing. People weren't ready for that type of transformation in the 2000s. So that's what I would ask him. What are the sectors he's interested in right now? What are the sectors he's running away from? I think that'd be a fun question to ask him. I'd be super curious to know. And what does he think of the current landscape of fundraising? Is it easier than it used to be to raise money and how he thinks it's going to change over the next two, three years? Uh, can't wait, man. I cannot wait to hear his answers to that. So we know that there are so many people out there who are hungry, like Brendan's been hungry since the age of 19, hungry for this knowledge. And the more we talk about it, the more we massage it, the more we dissect it, the more we have a frank conversation about these things, the more we're able to equip one another to have the success that we're capable of having. And so this is such an exciting time right now. You speak about time and timing. We are in the, I believe, in the very beginning of a pretty interesting time as we start to navigate a post, dare I say, post-pandemic world in the next several years. What does that mean to the way in which we operate, to the way in which we do business, to the way in which we think about being a global citizen and a responsible entrepreneur. And so there's so many facets and layers to that. So can't wait. Brendan, as always, a huge pleasure. I love the way you think. I love the fact that you are such a startup junkie. So until next time, we hope that you can make it for the next one and please do make it a great one. Take care, you guys. Have a great one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.